historically, as you know, because I've said it like five times now, and you're just beginning to say, hey, so-and-so told me, cardiovascular test is historically the lowest scoring test in Pathopharm 2. Lackers. So what we're going to try and do is uh, change that for your class. So the first one, the first one, there's, there's basically four diseases that you have to learn, and that's it. The first one is hypertension. The second one is coronary artery disease. The fourth one is heart failure, in particular chronic heart failure. And then the fifth one is dysrhythmias. So we're going to kind of do the, the big overview, the kind of so what that people tend to forget sometimes because they get lost in all the details. Because there are a lot of details and it's very helpful to know them, but in the end, this is kind of like the, you know, like the cheat sheet, the bottom line, the Cliff Notes version. So in hypertension, first of all, what's the definition of hypertension? What's, what, okay, so greater than 120, no, that's not true, greater than or equal to 120 over 80. So actually 120 over 80 is technically not normal anymore. And if it's above 120 over 80, what's the term for that? Pre-hypertension. Up until 130 over 85. No, 140 over, 80, over 90. There you go. Yeah. So once you get above um, 140, 140 over 90, what do we call that? Hypertension, stage one. And then once you get above 160 over 100, then you get hypertension stage two. And what do we say it was when you get all the way up to uh, all the way up to uh, 220 over 200? No, 220 over 120. Hypertensive urgency, and if you have symptoms, then it's crisis. 220 over 120. And just so we remember, what's the treatment of choice for hypertensive crisis? IV nitroprusside. Brand name is Nipride. I go by nitroprusside, Professor Brooks goes by Nipride, so whatever. All right, now, um, why is hypertension important? Why do we care? I mean, it's asymptomatic most of the time. So it damages five things. What are the five things? You got to know them. All right. So you guys are going to look smart on the podcast. I gotcha. Eyes, heart, brain, kidneys, and arteries. All right. So what's the effect on eyes? Eventually, blindness. Now, we're talking 30 years usually. It's not, you know, you get hypertension and five years later you're blind over time. Um, what about the heart? What does it cause in the heart? Causes the heart to work harder. And what does that do to the heart? It makes it bigger, stronger, bigger. When you work a muscle, it gets stronger and it gets bigger. Now, why is that bad for the heart? Right. So when it, as it gets bigger, it makes the chambers of the heart smaller, so you have less preload. Less preload equals less stroke volume, less stroke volume, less cardiac output. 
which in turn makes your heart work harder, which makes it use more oxygen, which makes it more at risk for heart attacks and heart failure. Whew. Got it. What about the brain? More likely to have strokes. Um, both kinds of strokes, ischemic and um, hemorrhagic, which we aren't going to talk about until we get to neuro. But Kidneys, what does it cause over time? Chronic renal failure. What's the number one cause of chronic renal failure in the United States? Diabetes. Diabetes. Guess what's not too far behind it? Hypertension. Hypertension. Um, what would be the first sign of kidney damage? Proteinuria. Proteinuria, just like with diabetes. And then the arteries. Um, the damage to the arteries that hypertension does is it causes mechanical damage, but in the end result, it makes the patient more likely to get atherosclerosis. The atherosclerosis, in turn, causes three problems. Well, four problems, but... So, the first one is heart attacks, coronary artery disease. Second one is strokes. We already talked about that. Um, the next one is something called peripheral arterial disease, PAD. And in peripheral arterial disease, you don't have enough blood supply to your legs. So that makes it really difficult to walk, go upstairs, um, go up ladder, anything that requires physical movement to the legs, it makes it more difficult. So what happens is you walk and you start to get pain in your legs because your legs don't have enough oxygen. So that's called intermittent claudication. And it's treated similar to, heart, to coronary artery disease in terms of trying to reduce the amount of atherosclerosis. Some patients have it so severely they can't even take 10 steps without stopping because the pain is so bad. Um, sometimes you'll see people in the mall and they'll have these little like um, tricycle walkers and has this little platform so like when they get, they can't walk anymore, they can sit down. <laughs> it's very cool. So I guess for intermittent claudication, you could use that. You know, you take your 10 steps, sit down. Yeah. Um, you know when you're in the store and you're like, hmm, what should I get? You know, should I get this soup over here or should I get that? Oh, wait, no, this is fat-free. Oh, wait, that's low-sodium. Why don't they make low-sodium and low-fat? And you're thinking to yourself and like, you know, just this back and forth. Patient with bad claudication can't even do that. So maybe they could just sit on their little walker and go. Hmm. Anyway, um, so that's peripheral arterial disease. And then the, the last one isn't a disease per se, but just having that um, impaired, just having impaired arteries in general is gonna reduce wound healing over time, especially to the legs. And the other thing that we'll do is everyone's favorite erectile dysfunction. Say again? Because everyone laughs every time I say it. I say erectile dysfunction, like half the class is like <laughs> So it's everyone's favorite. All right, now as far as treating high blood pressure, um, well, sorry, two different types of hypertension, primary and secondary. Secondary is caused by something else. And in the podcast and in your notes, there's a lot of something else's that can be that it can that it can cause. Um, so I'm not going to go over that right now, but you need to be familiar with that list. But at a minimum, 
a patient who has high blood pressure needs to be screened for with a, an ECG and a BMP and um, you're an electrolyte panel. Make sure that it's not something else. Um, the other thing for high blood pressure is if someone has high blood pressure once, do we diagnose them with high blood pressure? No. What do we do? Make them come back. How, how long usually? Yeah, a week to two weeks. Now, when we say, when you say that, you have to take it with a grain of salt. If the blood pressure is 180 over, eight, over um, 160, they've got high blood pressure. You don't have to have them come back. But if their blood pressure is like 145 over 92, that patient you need to have come back. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, but technically, you need to have at least two separate readings separated by a week or more to really diagnose someone with hypertension. The other thing is you're supposed to take the blood pressure the right way. So do you remember the right way from health assessment? Seated, back supported, arm supported at heart level, resting for five minutes, no smokes, no nicotine, um, no caffeine for at least 30 minutes before you take the blood pressure. So if you don't do all of those things, you know, if they have slightly high blood pressure, it might be the way you're taking it and they don't really have blood pressure. If you systematically measure people five millimeters high, you know, there's a huge amount of wasted money that you're going to be, you know, by falsely diagnosing people, there's a huge amount of money that you're wasting giving people medications they don't need and causing unnecessary side effects. On the other hand, if you're going five, five millimeters low by accident on everyone systematically, you're gonna miss like a huge number of people who are gonna go on to get chronic renal failure and heart disease. So you wanna try and get through the blood pressure the best you can according to the correct way. All right, so patients got, patients got high blood pressure. How do we treat them? Blood pressure medications, you're so smart. Which one? All right, so the, the um, general guidelines were that you should start with a diuretic nowadays. The, there, there's a <clears throat> commission called the Joint National Commission on blah, 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 high blood hypertension, and they recommend that you start with a diuretic. In particular, a, chlor uh, a thiazide diuretic, um, which in the United States typically is going to be hydrochlorothiazide. Um, then what they want you to do is, if the blood pressure is not treated adequately, then you move up to something else. And you keep them on the hydrochlorothiazide and you add in a second medication. See, in the old days, what we'd do is we'd put you on a medication, didn't work enough, we increased the dose. Didn't work enough, increase the dose. Once the dose was at the max, well, that medication must not work for you. We take you off that one and we put you on another one and we do the same thing. Well, nowadays we know that 60% at least of people who have high blood pressure are not gonna be controlled on just one medication. So what they say now is use more than one medication but use smaller doses. So the other thing is, remember we talked about um, if you have a patient who has a beta blocker, or sorry, if you have a patient who has a vasodilator, drops the blood pressure, how does the body respond? Sympathetic response. And 
renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So if you, give a if you have a vasodilator, your body's going to respond by putting out um, sympathetic response. Now, the two aspects of the sympathetic response are going to be increased heart rate, increased contractility, increased conductivity from the beta receptors, and then vasoconstriction from the alpha receptors. But it's a vasodilator, so it can't dilate. So what happens to the heart? The heart goes tachycardic and has to pump harder than it normally would. So what happens if we give a medication that causes vasodilation and slows the heart down some? Might be safer, might be more effective. The other thing with renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is that you get the release of aldosterone, which causes kidneys to retain uh, sodium and in return retain fluid. So if you give them a diuretic in combination with the vasodilator, you prevent that. So they're saying smaller doses of multiple medications that work in different ways is probably going to be more effective than just maxing them out on one dose. Now, there's another thing, which is if the patient has a, a compelling reason to start on a drug other than a diuretic, then you should start them on the something else. So for example, if you have a patient who's a type 2 diabetic, what would be the drug of choice to start them on? An ACE inhibitor. Because the ACE inhibitor also helps to prevent nephropathy. Um, so, you know, if you have a patient who has um, who has a heart problem, uh, whether it's been a prior MI or they have heart failure, then the drug of choice to start them on would probably be a beta blocker. Although, anyway, that's a whole other topic because once you have an MI or or heart failure, you should be on a bunch of drugs anyway. But so anyway, if you have a compelling reason, you know, then you can start with whatever drug would also overlap with that compelling reason. And the most common one, diabetes ACE inhibitor. Uh, if the patient's allergic to an ACE inhibitor, what could you use instead? An ARB. All right, so that's hypertension. It's pretty simple. Any questions about it? Okay, yes, I've, thank you for the TLC, therapeutic lifestyle, therapeutic lifestyle um, modifications. They call it TLC. Um, I forget what the C stands for. Yeah. Changes. There you go. See? So smart. Um, so with speaking, they want, generally speaking, they want you to reduce salt, lose weight, exercising, stop and eat DASH diet. The DASH diet is um, high in fruits and vegetables and lean meat and low in fats and carbohydrates. Although I guess fruits and vegetables are technically carbohydrates, but not starches. Now let's talk briefly about this whole salt thing. It's a crock. For certain populations, particularly the African-American population, they tend to be more salt sensitive. So restricting salt in a person who's salt sensitive can be very helpful. You know, restricting salt can drop their blood, their blood pressures, you know, six millimeters or more sometimes, which is like more than you get with some drugs. However, most people don't respond well to salt, to restriction. Um, 
you know, and take a look over in, J in Japan, they eat five times more sodium than we do. And their sodium isn't sodium chloride, it's monosodium glutamate, baby. And they have less high blood pressure than we do. So, you know, the, the whole sodium thing is mostly political. You know, I know New York City thinks that it's bad for you and that restaurants shouldn't even put salt on the salt, you know, salt on the tables anymore, much less cook with it, but it's not true. Um, for some people, it's helpful, but for most people, you know, all it does is make them miserable. So, choice is yours. All right. Um, any other questions about high blood pressure? Uh, I, I think on the podcast I do talk about therapeutic lifestyle changes with a guy who had high blood pressure and he's having headaches. He came in to see me, his blood pressure was really high, and he was working at Pizza Inn. Pizza Inn, is that what they call it? Yeah. Pizza something. In, in the hospital. And when he started working there, he was drinking like four liters of soft drink a day. And gains, he gained like 20 pounds. And so, so he cut that out, and his blood pressure came back to normal, his headaches went away. So, you know, therapeutic lifestyle changes can help some people a lot. Other people, they're not going to help at all. 